Hey there. Thanks for joining us on The Small Podcast, where we uncover stories of dedicated small business owners who have sacrificed to grow and have creatively adapted to be where they are today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Scott Baer, and with me today is the co-owner of Dune Coffee Roasters in Santa Barbara, California, Julia Mayer. Thanks so much for hanging out today. Thank you for having me, Scott. Of course. Um, And for those who don't know about Dune, how would you briefly describe your coffee shop and roastery? We are a specialty coffee shop based in Santa Barbara and a specialty coffee roaster. Um, We do full, like the full scale operations from importing the coffee to actually brewing and providing it for customers. So from the very beginnings to the very ends, we're pretty much all those hands. Um, and specialty coffee is sort of a term that encompasses, um, it's a quality score, but it's mostly Mm. what you're going to see when you see these nicely designed spaces and, you know, really welcoming things like ceramic and so forth. Those are sort of signifiers, but ultimately specialty coffee refers to, um, a quality score of coffee. So. Got it. (laughs) And how did you get started into this world personally? Gosh, I mean, I got my start in coffee in 1996. I was a junior in high school and I got hired by a local coffee shop called The Daily Grind. It was the year they opened and I was just so taken by the concept of this coffee shop, a place that like people, all these different kinds of people would be in. In the 90s, you have this like real image of the coffee shop and it was like real based on like Seattle and singles and like, you know cool artists and musicians and everything. And I was just so taken by that sort of way of seeing my community and way of seeing people Mm -hmm. that I didn't interact with. You know, I mean, I was in high school, so I was a kid, but you know, in the 1900s there, we didn't have, you know, social media and the internet to sort of find out about stuff. So working in a coffee shop that had a lot of people from city college and UCSB working there, I was just like, it was like going to like fast tracking culture in a lot of ways for me. And I could not get enough of it. I was like, yep. Sign and up. what did, what did that coffee shop look like? Uh, Cause yeah. it's funny watching like the way that even the vibe of shops change and evolve over the years. What did that look like back then in the nineties? So there was for sure like punny language, like, <laughs> like espresso, E-expresso. <laughs> and, you know, we had like 15 different coffees that would be brewed at any given time from like vanilla bean and cinnamon bun. And the coffee would get brewed at like nine and some of them wouldn't be dumped until like 6 p.m. So it was just like sitting on these hot burners, thousands of syrups and just like so cheesy, so 90s. But um, but it, it it definitely provided a place for people to be. And I think that was my first sort of understanding of what coffee even was. I mean, for Mm. sure it was this beverage that my parents drank every day and I got into drinking it sort of, but for me, the like what got me with all of its hooks was this place, like a place that you go that would bring these people together. And I mean, I, it wasn't just college kids, you know, there's like 50 year old men on their lunch breaks would come in and have a cappuccino and then they would be reading their books. Again, the real crazy thing for me to think about is the nineties don't feel like they were so long ago to me as an adult, 
But just realizing how much our culture has shifted away from sort of that, like having meeting points. Um, mm. You and I might connect over text messages or I might see a picture you took and like it. And somehow we might be connected on like this digital platform. But, you know, not so long ago, we all were very reliant on a physical place and proximity to each other to have that mm-hmm. connection. And so, you know, I mean, those first customers, I I ended up studying modern literature um, and I got into studying modern literature in college because of books that these like random customers would give me because I like reading. And so thinking about the ways that I became a changed person by the proximity to people around me and being like open mm-hmm. to that. Um, that to me was my first sort of realization that coffee was so much more than just like a consumable product. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like that third space mentality. Um, I feel like really came out of coffee. I mean, I guess we think back and we hear about the pubs in England, um, hear about even Tolkien that they would just like hang out in the pubs at like 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, so maybe coffee's nice for that. What did, did people used to go work there a lot too, in the same way that you see people saying like, Oh, I'm going to go work for a couple hours at a coffee shop with laptops. It's, I think you can actually do such different work than it was in the nineties. What did that look like? Um, my first job, you know, that was absolutely not at all the case. I would say the business was like 90% to go 10% if that for here, but people would hang out a little bit and it was really just like really completely social Maybe Mm. someone might like be reading a book or editing like a physical paper, but you did not see laptops. Um, I then went on to study at University of California, Santa Cruz. And, you know, I mean, I existed like I would even say like the coffee shop was like my second place. (laughs) I I was in coffee shops more than I was in my house, my dorm, because, you know, I would like go to one coffee shop and I would work there for a few hours. And then I would like walk to the other coffee shop and like work there for a few hours and then take the bus and go to this other coffee shop. And so, you know, again, it was not the, I mean, and I realized that my experience is centered around a a student's experience, but that has been echoed through my life as I've lived in different cities, the way that I utilize the coffee shop. And I feel like, it wasn't even until maybe like 2010, 11 that I started seeing people really like utilizing the coffee shop as a workspace. Wow. I didn't realize it was that recent, but I, I definitely see that. So then what did it go from, from you and how long did you work in uh, the coffee shops to uh, and take me through? How did you launch your own? Oh yeah. So I, like I said, 96, 97 was when I started my coffee career, which we realized recently is like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You say nineties and it feels like it was like 10 years ago, but you realize it's like significantly longer. Yeah. I'm like, that was like a uh, 20. Oh, never mind. I don't know. It was a while ago. Yep. So yeah. And then I went, I studied, um, I went to college and I, I, you know, I've always worked. I've always had to have a job. I put myself through college. Um, so, you know, I always just gravitated towards that kind of work. Um, I would get a job in an office and I would quit like a month later because I would be so depleted. Like sitting at a desk was an energy, it like deflated me. So I just always went to jobs where I was around people that were dynamic. And um, that was the coffee shop for me. And, you know, once I graduated college, I moved to Los Angeles where I started working in public radio, which is what I thought I wanted to do. I was like searching. Mm -hmm. 
I was certain that NPR was going to be for me. I got a job at KCRW, which is a really amazing public radio station. And I was like, there it is. I made it. I'm 23 and I made it. (laughs) And I very quickly felt very sad and lonely and kind of just, I really lacked the connection. So I ended up working in coffee while working at the radio station Mm -hmm. at my dream job. And, you know, after five years there, I realized that I needed to be committed to what I wanted out of my life and recognizing that I have so I've got so much out of relationships with other people. I got so much and like, and I was really good at it. Like there was a very good give and take in that sort of coffee world. And so I moved um, to San Francisco and I got a job in um, management at Pete's and worked for Pete's for a long time for a couple of years, I guess. And then, moved back to Santa Cruz to work for my boss, who was my boss in college. And he uh, had me running his whole operation, which was um, roasting. Um, I opened two stores for him and sort of managing multiple retail facilities. So, um, you know, that college job that was just, you know, to pay the bills at the time ended up being um, what firmly set me on a career track in coffee. Because um, I always say I, I basically cut my teeth on someone else's payroll Mm. you know he he was paying me to learn how to run a business and how to do these things and that yeah so that set me on my track and then I left that job and ended up moving to Mammoth (laughs) Lakes nice my husband and I he was my boyfriend at the time but we decided like I wasn't sure right I swear I mean my advice I'm around like this is such a side note but I am around 20 one to 30 year olds uh every day and i feel yep. i feel like a little bit of a mom energy there where i just want to tell them like you need to try other things like mm. you need and just trusting that it's okay for things to not work out it's okay for this job to not be the job for you or whatever but that was what we did you know i moved we moved to mammoth because we thought i just kept feeling like oh this is the truth it's like i kept feeling like Coffee wasn't like the good job to have. Mm. I needed to have some sort of status job. And I had left. Was it also like stability wise that it just didn't have that? No, it wasn't really that. It was really like, I mean, to be completely honest, it came down to, I would like go to dinner with friends or my parents' friends and they would be like, what are you doing? Mm. Or my daughter's a real estate agent. Oh, my son's in medical school. And I sort of started to feel that status that like weird ego thing creep in a bit. And I kept just thinking, well, maybe I should be working in a career and something else. So I got a job in the finance department at Mammoth Mountain (laughs) and it didn't work out. Um, But it was amazing because it was 2009. And the reason that um, it really ended was because the financial collapse happened and we all got laid off. So I moved back to Santa Barbara where my parents, where I grew up and where my parents lived. And we were living with my parents and I didn't know what I was going to do and just kind of felt very adrift and sort of had this very weird thing happen where my mom's friend's daughter had signed a lease on State Street and they couldn't keep it. And someone had told her that I would want to open a coffee shop. And she reached out to me and was like, is this true? And this was like, and so here's the like side you know, the side note is that 
I always wanted to open my own coffee shop. Like mm. since 1996, I thought I want, this is what I want to do. But it was like that, that can you push down the road? Like when I have more experience, when I do more, when I'm right. And I just wasn't going to do it. And in 2009, the economy collapsed and they, the landlord was willing to negotiate the rent to like a fraction of what it was. Wow. And so we went and looked at it and we signed the lease and we opened 14 days after signing the lease. Oh, no way. And at this point, did you have a plan in your head or it was just this dream that you've always had and somehow they just knew that you were the one who like, oh, maybe she's prepared for uh, this business to launch. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? Like if you tell enough people what you want to do and you yep. telling people this is what something I want to do, like you better be ready to cash that check when it comes because that's basically what happened. You know, I had been like, well, I think I want to open my own business. I want to do this. I've been doing this for other people. I think I would be really good at it. And uh, so that's how it happened. It was just like wow. a friend of a friend had this lease. And, you know, we had been laid off. We had no money. We had no savings. We had all, we were living, like, it's so funny because we live in Santa Barbara. There's no basements here, but my parents had a basement. We were literally living <laughs> in the, the only basement. We were so cliche, but it um, it ended up working out because my dad is in construction and my mom is an accountant and we kind of just rallied. My friends that own a specialty coffee company up in Santa Cruz loaned us our equipment till we could afford to buy it. Wow. So like the literal like duct tape, shoestring, all of it, that was how we opened. And so while I didn't have a plan that I had written out, I had done it before. I had done it for mm -hmm. other people. Um, I opened new stores for Pete's in San Francisco. I did it in San in Santa Cruz. Also, I had a sense of the actual nuts and bolts of what went into it. But I also had like incredible amount of motivation to make my own thing. And it sounds super risky when I say it, but it was not reckless because I had this like I knew I could trust my, like, I knew it was going to work. Yeah. This is, um, 2009 was a different time for coffee. We were kind of undergoing this, like we, they, we call them waves. Like the first wave is like when people start drinking coffee. Second wave is like, you know, <laughs> like nineties coffee shops and sort of that. And then the third wave is this concept of like specialty coffee, an elevated experience to like the Starbucks experience, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about things like the signifiers we talked about at the beginning. It's like ceramic cups, real espresso, macchiatos, latte art, all of these things were sort of like becoming really, they were like moving up as like what, how people wanted to experience coffee. Um, and the, 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 the really the first specialty coffee shops were Stumptown in Portland and they opened in 1999. So you know, 10 years later was like specialty coffee is just really just sort of hmm. come out into the world. And, um, it was not there. Nobody knew what it was in Santa Barbara. And I mean, <laughs> it's, it's really funny because we would be working and people would stop by random people off the street. Cause it's on state street. Our first shop is on state street mm -hmm. is the pedestrian thoroughfare. And they would like stick their head in and say, another coffee shop well you're gonna, huh. you're gonna fail 
this is never going to work. Wow. <laughs> and I, we always crack up because I think about like how much effort that takes to tell someone that they're going to fail. <laughs> yeah. Like, why? Why? Thanks for going out of your way to uh, encourage me. That in you. I'm like, I don't know. It just, it was such a funny thing to have like our first few weeks of like building the space out be full of these people being like, Oh, blah. but then once we, op- once we opened our doors and we were serving the coffee the way we wanted, which is, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many things to talk about, about how that, how we make coffee differently. But, um, people were like, Oh my gosh, what is this? Why is this different? I've never seen anything like this. And, you know, Santa Barbara is sleepy. We're close to LA, but it's like, we, it takes a while for things to catch on. It's like not, you know, we're not New York or San Francisco and, and, mm-hmm. and that's a great thing. Right. But we definitely were the first people to even conceive of making, co- like we would ask people if they wanted things for here and they would be like, what? Because everything was to go at that time. And I mean, that that was people's experience in coffee shops was that it was basically a fast food commodity product. And Mm. we were kind of saying, hey, just stay, hang out, stand here. We'll chat with you and you'll drink your coffee and then you can go or you can take it too, like no problem. And and so we kind of were re-engineering a way of interacting with coffee in Santa Barbara that didn't exist yet. And um, and I think that was. Once, once, once we got through a few weeks of it, we could see that it was going to work. And I, I like had had full faith that it would work just because. And had you seen that similar model at Stumptown and, um, up in the Bay area and Santa Cruz, um, already, cause you mentioned you opened Pete's, uh, was that already the environment that they had there? Yeah. Um, okay. the Pete's that I worked at was just around the corner from, um, Ritual, which is again another forerunner in like one of the first specialty coffee companies in our industry, and they were like right around the corner. So I would like take my breaks at Ritual. Like I would like leave my coffee shop and go there. So that's amazing. It was definitely. And you, you like know, coffee? What? Do you like coffee? I don't like coffee. So it was definitely a model that I believed in, but you know, it's like, it's like an onion. It's like anything that is really complicated. Like you think you like it for one reason and then you start to like unfold it and you're like, I like it for this reason actually. And then it comes down you're like, wait, I, I like it for this entire another reason. And so it, to me, building a, building a business in this industry, but also building a business with this product has really Mm -hmm it just keeps giving me new like intense challenges, which also yields intense commitment to it. Like, yeah. So, you know, cause we didn't first, we weren't roasting coffee when we first opened, we just were buying coffee from a specialty coffee company called Verve in San in Santa Cruz, who are the people that loaned us our equipment. They were my very good friends. They are my very good friends. And, uh, nice. They really were like, you guys should just roast your own coffee. You can do this. And like, that that speaks to the kind of industry we work in, which is, first of all, like, it's really, it has to be collaborative in a little bit of a, like, it has to be collaborative, but it's also has so much more to offer when we're collaborative, like we can get mm-hmm. further together. Um, but having that initial push to roast our own coffee, which is, we started roasting coffee in 2012. Um, and then that, I mean, 
I did not know that I was going to be in a global importing business. Like I did not have that as an understanding when I opened in 2009. So what did you think uh, the process was before uh, when when they said you should roast your own? Do you remember what you thought that process really looked like? Yeah. I mean, I, I had the grasp of the process. Like I under, and by the way, coffee, like there's not, there's one thing that specialty coffee does really well. And it's like design and marketing. (laughs) Like, I think we all agree that coffee shops are cool. Like they hire good designers to make them good logos and make them rad videos of importing and all that. Right. But so I had this idea of what it was going to look like, you know, like I knew that we would like maybe go to Costa Rica and we would like visit a farm and buy coffee through these importers and exporters and it would come here and we would roast it. Um, and that's like a really good tale. And it's, it is true. Like nothing about that is not true, but um, sort of understanding. I don't think I really realized the importance of relationships, Mm. but also I mean, I was very disillusioned by how much of the good work of doing it right is actually just marketing. And I was, I mean, it was like, it like harmed me in my heart a little bit because that's something that I feel very passionately about to feel like people were telling one, saying one thing and doing Mm. it. Can you expand on that a little more? Sure. So there's a lot of, terminology that they'll we'll use in coffee about the way we trade coffee and one of the most thrown about one is direct trade the idea behind direct trade is that i'm directly giving my money to whoever is producing my coffee and that is an incredibly complicated thing to actually be able to do because how you get your coffee like we can use the example of Honduras. They're a really good example because it's not, um, they're not like a forerunner of the coffee industry. Like something like Brazil is like coffee is one of their main, that's their main exports. It's like, it is a machine. But so in Honduras, if I go and I try a coffee and I want it and I say, I would like to buy this coffee, I still have to have somebody that will sign a document releasing it out of Honduras to a freighter that will then come to the United States where it will be accepted in by an importer. Like, and then that will, then I have to like have it come to me. And so, I mean, and that is on like the most base level, that's like four to five people between the farmer and me. So the idea of like direct trade and like putting farmers and producers, like, like using their faces to sell coffees Mm. is really complicated because a lot of the times they're not getting compensated the way that they should be or um, or it it's just not like completely true. And I think it's okay for us to say like we buy our coffee like in a long-term sustainable relationship using these exporters and importers who are also you doing good work to benefit the communities that they work in. Because so if I'm buying like a direct trade coffee from Honduras and like let's say next year – because of the hurricanes, they don't produce any coffee. Well, what do I do? Like, do I just not give them money? Like there's no relationship in a lot of these cases. Now, importers, like we work with an importer and an exporter in Honduras called Beneficio San Vicente. And 
they're going to they're going to support those farmers that they take care of. But I'm not buying coffee directly from a farmer, which means I don't use the word direct trade, but it's way better because it's more sustainable and protected. Mm. This is just like one tiny example, but it's like there's in marketing, you know, we see it all the time. I think the most egregious use of it is like the word natural <laughs> in body care or anything, right? Like everything yep. natural, but doesn't mean anything at this point. We've totally lost meanings of words because, right. because of, because we want to make things desirable for people to buy. And like, here, I get it. Like I am a company and I want to sell coffee. So I want to make it attractive to people, but mm -hmm. I struggle with the way that we have like greenwashed and sustainable washed everything. And I, yep. uh, and so that, that has been one of the biggest delusions that was shattered for me. And we've even had like issues with that where we thought we had these like really good relationships and we were like doing things right. And then we were working with an exporter or an importer who then just stopped buying that person's coffee and we had nothing we could do about it. Real. So like you learn as you go. Wow. Yep. And in contrast to everything that you're going after, um, just for a black and white comparison, what's like the dark side of this industry? Oh. I know there's a lot to it and there's, I'm sure yes. you could talk for a long time and it's like really sad, but I, I think it's helpful to see sure. you're spending a lot of time and energy to try to make this a good relationship for people that for people here in the States, like we will never know aside from what you tell us, but what's like, what are you comparing against? Sure. That's a, it's really good. And I think sometimes I can jump I can jump like 90 steps to the end and I'm like, this is so terrible. And it's like really not that bad in comparison to what, what you're asking, which is the crazy thing about coffee is that it is traded on the stock market as a commodity. And so it is, it's prices fixed by traders and mm -hmm. it, it currently for the last year, it has been going up and down and around a dollar per pound. And that, to give you a very clear number, the price of production in most countries is $1.29 to $1.50. So essentially commodity coffee being at a dollar means coffee producers are losing money every pound that we buy on the commodity market. And wow. So when we talk about something like a migration crisis, mm -hmm. we have to see that the way we buy coffee is impacting that. So if, if, if we only buy coffee and I mean, I would say like Folgers, Nestle is like the number one worst. They're the worst. I hate to say that about, I hate to single them out, but man, they really are the worst um, and for so many reasons, but they, they buy the majority of the coffee in the world because they do this like instant coffee. Mm. And so they're buying coffee under commodity in a lot of ways. But, you know, a lot of company, a lot of, we're not talking about specialty. I should be very clear. Like nobody that buys specialty is buying commodity coffee, but this is coffee that you're buying at the grocery store. This is coffee you're buying at Trader Joe's. This is, you know, if you're able to buy a coffee, a pound of coffee for under $10, there's a reason for it. Right. Yeah. And, um, so if you, if you're a producer in Guatemala and you're repeatedly losing money on what you're doing, 
and you're already like not in the greatest circumstances because Mm -hmm. this is the real complication about coffee is it's grown in the area between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. It's like the sun belt around the equator. And those are just happen to be countries that are, you know, they're not the United States for the most part. Um, They're not, you know, first world dominate countries. So those people are not going to keep growing coffee. You're not, I mean, you're not going to, if if you're losing losing money every pound of coffee and we're talking like thousands of pounds, you're not going to keep doing that. You're either going to cut it out and grow a cash crop, which may or may not be something that's illegal. You're going to sell your land. You're going to give up. You're going to leave. You're going to, maybe you're going to just like realize that getting into the United States illegally and like getting a job in a meat packing factory or something else is going to make you more money. A lot of people leave Central America and go to Mexico because there's jobs there now. And it's, I mean, it's like spoken about as plainly as I'm speaking about it right now. Like I was just in Honduras in March, last March, and they had a 25% reduction in coffee producing in their area. And I said, where did they go? And he said, where do you think they went? And so it's like, when we really think about these, like, it's like a tiny ripple of a tiny pebble, right? Like it's just my coffee. Ah, it's yep. just cheaper. Yeah, it's so much cheaper. I'll just buy this. But it's like, you're basically essentially setting up the house of cards to fall down. And that to me is the most painful, darkest side of an industry that I'm have devoted my life to. Right. It's like, I have to buy coffee from people who do not live in the situations and with the privilege that I live with in Santa Barbara, California, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, here we are so lucky between in Santa Barbara, Ventura, Carpinteria. I actually live in Carpinteria. We grow the most beautiful avocados in the world. Right. And like, I know where my food comes from. Like mm-hmm. I, buy my, I buy my produce from the farmer's market or a CSA. I feel very, I feel like very critically important that like, I know where my food comes from. And like, so you see the pride of that and to know that like we're our industry, like my company relies upon buying a product from another country where they don't live in the same circumstances mm-hmm. is a real struggle. Like that, that is like a moral struggle for me. So the only way that I can do that is to only do it right. And if I do it wrong to correct my mistakes and find better ways to do it and to sort of like be part of a push in our industry to make sure that we're doing everything we can to, first of all, make coffee a sustainable thing for people. I mean, people want to grow coffee. Like a lot of, in a lot of these instances, these are like legacy families, people whose grandparents grew coffee. Mm. And I speak specifically about Central and South America because that's the majority of our coffee. That's where we buy the majority of it because it's the most traceable by that. I mean, I know we like, we can go to their farms if we want and we can like make sure that we're doing things right and so on. And it's way harder in Indonesia and Mm. in Africa Although we're making we we we're making progress in Africa, um, in Kenya specifically. So, you know, these are people that grandparents grew coffee, and their parents grew coffee, and they want they want like it's, they're proud of what they do. Their coffee is good. They're doing these things, and they they don't want to not do it. I mean, 
In some instances in Honduras, I was speaking with our friend who runs Beneficio San Vicente and, you know, he has people that are leaving their farms for two years to they're paying coyotes to bring them to Mexico or to the United States to raise the money to come back to Honduras to support their farms. And so when I think about that, I'm hearing these are people that want this. So we need to give them opportunities. And what that has meant for us as a company, and I don't speak just for myself, like this is what most good specialty coffee companies are doing. I'm not alone on this. Like nice is you find places in your menu to spend more money on coffee. So if if the cost of commodity coffee is $1.20, that means that fair trade, which is like what we consider good, fair trade is tied to the commodity price. So that's just two times commodity. So it's still not that much money, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm buying a coffee for you know $2.10, that's only like 70 cents profit. Or that's only 70 cents to like pay your farmer, to pay your like farm helpers and to like pay for all of those things. You know, it's like, it's not like it's just money in their pockets. So in our case, we're committed to paying um, as high, like as high as we can. And we've been able to move the price up considerably. Currently our price is like average price is 5.30 a pound for coffee. Uh, In some cases it's way higher than that. Like, a lot higher and in some cases it's a little bit lower but we're working towards um you know as much as we can moving it and the crazy thing about that is like if because the consumer can go to trader joe's i'm sorry for picking on trader joe's but it's a everybody knows what you're talking about you know i, oh. I love trader joe's but if i can yep. go there and spend five dollars on a pound of coffee because it's got like pretty a pretty picture of like a farm on it and you think and then maybe there's a bird on it and you're like it's shade grown bird friendly <laughs> like if i can if i can make my place of business a place that makes somebody feel safe and comfortable and confident in spending seven extra dollars mm-hmm. that is how we shift our industry so it's not a bashing of a place or a tear down of something else it's more of a as an industry, we are like specialty coffee as a market share is really small for like the whole coffee industry. But if any, any percentage that we add to specialty coffee is like a lot of money going to these better practices to farmers that can make an actual living doing what they want. They can do these like improvements to get their quality up and so on and so forth. So that's like the big task that we have is like, so So to bring it all the way back to 1996 and being in a cultural, like in a bed of fun culture is like, if we can create coffee shops that are super fun to be in, that make you feel so great and you can like meet the, meet the mayor and you can like talk to a Pulitzer prize winner and you can like watch this rad dude named Scott making like a cool logo for somebody and like chat with them. And also I'm like, tell me why this coffee is $5 and I'm able to tell you and you feel good about it. And then you're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, this coffee is good. I'm going to make this at home instead of the Trader Joe's I bought last week. And so we can, like, I really see what we do as like truly being ambassadors. Like we make people feel safe, like come feel feel safe spending a little bit more money on coffee. Come feel safe in our place. Like we're going to take care of you and it's going to feel good. And you're going to leave maybe like, 
not everybody wants a lecture on like the instances <laughs> of, of tr- coffee trade, but at the same time, people, and, and this is another thing is like, people don't necessarily, people want to know that they're, that it's worth it, I think is the best way to put it. Yep. They want to know that like, it's worth the extra few dollars and they leave feeling great. And I mean, that's something we feel really passionately about as a company is like, I want people to, I want everybody to be able to feel comfortable in coffee, in specialty coffee. And I want, I want everybody to leave feeling like incredibly better than they came in. You know, that's the goal. And that doesn't mean just customers. That means people that work for us. That means Mm. coffee producers that we work with. It means vendors. It's all of us, right? Because we we don't live in silos. Like we live in a community of all of us. And so if, Mm -hmm. if only, if I'm the only one benefiting from this whole thing, then like I blew it. So it's a, it's a complicated, right. And it's really, it's really yucky when you realize and like, and then you really, like if you could get into it, it's like, well, what, what about chocolate? Well, what about tea? I mean, all of these are, products that we consume kind of mindlessly without realizing the implications because these are not products that are grown in Ventura, mm-hmm. <laughs> not grown in Ohio, you know, and it's like, so it really like kind of opens your eyes to this reality that, you know, oh, so there's like 8,000 people walking towards our borders because they have nothing. But right. like, how did, how did we get to that point? Well, this is one, this is one piece of it. Right. So. Yeah. Wow. Honestly, I think it's probably one of the most encouraging things I've heard. Um, I love your shop. I love coming in every time I'm up there and, um, going to lucky llama and carp too. Um, but I, I think I'm most encouraged by it. It's like, you're so passionate about, you can tell me if this is true or not, but you're so passionate about just making the lives better of so many people from your employees. It's like, that's really what you're selling is a way to make people's lives better. Um, and it just happens to be through coffee, which you've always enjoyed. Um, and as you're talking about the whole process, the craziest part to me is when you're quote unquote, raising the price of coffee, um, at your shop, you're simply just getting them to like a survivable place. That is not even that they are making, the farmers aren't making extreme amounts of money. It's, you are just trying to raise the standard to like what the baseline should have started at. Yeah. Um, which is pretty mind blowing to me. Um, how does that change? <laughs> That's a huge question actually, as I was about to say, but how does that potentially change on a large scale? Um, is it showing the people the realities of it or how do you, how have you seen this be successful if people say, wow, that is actually worth it for me to pay more. If I'm going to drink this, I will pay more because of this. Um, that's, I mean, it's crazy, right? So we've been in business for almost 12 years. And I remember the first time we had um, a coffee, a geisha. Geishas are like, they're kind of like, even people that don't know about coffee know about them because they're like the most expensive coffee in the world mm-hmm. for like, a th- you know, a couple hundred dollars a pound, it's green. So to sell it at any sort of like break even is like lots of money. Um, and I remember the first time we had it and it was like, 
we just got like two pounds of it from Verve just to try it. Really, that was the only reason. And we just brewed it and we just like showed people. We were like, do you just want to try this? Like customers would come in and we we're like, let's just try this. Like it's weird. And it was, you know, there is something about recognizing the quality is so vastly different. Mm-hmm. And I think that you as like I, as a provider of coffee, as a coffee, as a coffee salesperson, if you will, you know, I have to be trusted by my customers that I'm not just like pulling some prank on them or charging 20 bucks for a coffee because I want that extra money in my pocket. Mm -hmm. Like it, but I also think there's this like fine line. And I think this is something that's really important, which is this is not charity. And that's not what people who are producing coffee want, like they're not asking for charity. They're not asking you or me to show up with like $500 and say like, this is just for this. You know, they like me, you know, I don't like, I feel very strongly. Like I don't want people to come to my coffee shop because they feel sorry for me or because they like, Mm -hmm. like me as a person, but don't like what I do. Like I want people to like what I do and I work hard at what we do. And that is the same for a coffee producer. Now, so it's this weird sort of like walking these two fine lines between people, people need to realize that there's a, there is a cost to paying less for something. Yeah. We are sort of, we're seeing it in the fashion industry. We're, we're, we're seeing these, this sort of implications. I think COVID has ripped that, ripped it back, you know, like that there's toilet paper shortages because we don't make toilet paper here anymore or mm-hmm. you know, so on and so forth. It's like, we're sort of like, oh, there's a cost to this convenient lifestyle I live. But there's also a very easy solution. And it's just going to maybe cost a little bit more money. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm not even talking about a lot more money. Like, sure, the geisha experience is one thing. It's like a very mm-hmm. wonderful experience. And the reason we gave that away was because we wanted people to see that this is just something to try. Like, mm-hmm. but so if you're not, maybe you're not in the like $400 a pound coffee market, but you are somewhere above the like $7, maybe you're willing to try an $18.50 bag of coffee. Right. And you can really see that there's a quality difference. And that quality difference is based on a lot of work in the producers on the producer side. So, mm-hmm. When I think about that question, which is, which is complicated is like, how do I, how do we make this big change? Well, it's going to be one person at a time Mm -hmm. and it's really trust-based. And I think why I worry about our industry sort of telling tall tales or maybe stretching the truth about the way we do things is I think it, we lose credibility. Um, You know, like if we suddenly found out that Patagonia actually was just like plucking gooses geese not geese fucking geese in like mexico and like this whole traceable down was a total farce like yeah i mean it's like what happened with volkswagen with their yeah the emissions it's like man i i mean i owned one of those cars and i was so mad because Mm -hmm. so it's like we have to be really scrupulous with our word with our trust and i take people's trust really really seriously and that goes Mm -hmm. for employees i mean I have had bosses and employers who didn't respect that. And I learned from that, that that's not how I want to be. Um, 
<laughs> I have small children and we have this thing that we wrote on our door and it says, your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. <laughs> think about so that true. because I think about the fact that like, I could tell you all these things, but if I'm not actually like impeccable in what I do, you're not going to believe me at all. And so you're not going to buy my coffee and you're not going to like, you're going to be like, Oh, remember that lady who told me this whole thing about Honduras. And then it didn't even end up being like that real. It's like ambassadors have to be trustworthy. Ambassadors have to be honest and they have to be like, you have to meet people where they are. And, Mm -hmm. and that's how we make change. And I mean, even if it's just in this tiny community right here, right now, like that's enough for me for today because I end up, I happen to own coffee shops in a town full of college kids and they all go somewhere else, you know? And if their first in first experience buying coffee is from us and we show them that like, you can treat your employees really well, like you can have really good coffee and you can like do all of these things, then that's the expectation they're going to have from the next place they buy coffee from Hmm. next job they have. And that's how we like make any changes or impacts, you know, we don't like shame people (laughs) into it. It rarely works. Yeah. And can you tell me about that? We actually, I think we were just starting about it and then I had to know about this whole process, but you growing, um, what was French press? I believe that was that the first name you yeah. went with. I know that's what you've been. Okay. So growing French press, um, now Dune, um, so it's all any of those names. We can yeah. get into that, but, uh, what was that like growing your teams out and then, uh, seeing the culture of maybe Santa Barbara change. Um, and then I'd love to even hear like how maybe you've seen, um, the perception of coffee change, um, as you've been able to share more of this. Yeah. So, you know, we, like I said, we opened in 2009. We didn't have any employees. It was just us for almost four months. And as we added people like one at a time, it was really just because we got busy. We wasn't Mm. able to take breaks. So in the first year, we had maybe seven people that worked for us. And it became clear at the second end of the second year that these were really important, great people. And they were going to leave to find other jobs if we couldn't find a way to provide more for them. And like mm. one coffee shop can provide a pretty reasonable amount of money for uh, for your staff, but only to a certain point. So adding a second store meant we could have another store manager. And then when we added our second store, we realized that's when we should start bringing in more of what we were paying out for. So that's when mm. we were roasting coffee um, when we opened our second store. Um, so, you know, just like bringing more of our, um, like vertically integrating everything that we did. And so then that meant we hired a roaster. Um, Todd was the first roaster for a very long time. And then we sort of slowly added a real roasting position. Um, so, you know, when you go from one to two to three, which we now have three stores and a roastery and a kitchen, you know, that's like five manager jobs um, which would have good salaries. And then, you know, we have this other person that works for us named Chach. He's worked with, for us for the entirety of our business. Um, and we actually have had a, a handful of those people. One of them just left last year. He was there for like day one. It was so devastating, but he moved to Hawaii. So we forgave him. Oh, nice. But, um, <laughs> you know, like the growth never had really anything to do with anything, but giving people, um, more opportunity because again, 
like I love like I love Matt Fuel. He was our roaster till very recently, mm-hmm. and I was like, how do we keep like how Todd and I approach everything is like, how do we keep Matt Fuel here? What is he going to need? And I mean, right. this is literally how we. This is like maybe in like unprofessional but professional genius 101 but we're like how do we keep this person here okay so he's got benefits he has vacation pay he has a salary he has this but we don't have paternity leave yet so if he wants to have a kid we need to probably need to have that as a plan that's awesome straight up that's like how we think about how we do things and so then we come up with like how we got to how we have to support our staff and then we like figure out how to like pay for it (laughs) i don't know if it's the right way or the wrong way but um that's that's how we have sort of grown. It's the only reason we've grown. And, um, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think we've been perfect at it in any way. Like we've definitely learned a lot of hard mistakes, but we, um, we also, I'm really proud of what we have done. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really proud of where we're going to go. Like I do see, like, I already see new ways because COVID's changed so much for us and we're like in this deep state of contraction right now. So I think like, man, when we get to the other side of this, like as like, as the tide sort of lets back out, like we're, we're, we have a lot of opportunity to sort of, you know, commit in better and bigger ways, I guess. And what has COVID done to show you that? And how was, you can give me a brief how COVID was. For, yeah, give me your summary of 2020. And uh, no, but whatever you'd like to share of what that looked like for you guys. And then you mentioned of maybe what it's shown you a little more. Sure. So we, in March, March 3rd, Todd and I flew to Honduras. And wow. I, we- Right before. We drove up to LAX and we parked our car. We got on a shuttle and we- got on an airplane. We went through El Salvador. We got to Honduras and it was great. And we had this amazing trip. We visited our producers, some of which we've been working with for like seven years. They're like, they're, I mean, they like, really, I mean it when I say this, they like feel like coworkers. Like it's Mm. a good feeling what we have going on in Honduras. But Ben Hameen, who uh, is the owner of Beneficio San Vicente, we were just joking around. Um, We were tasting. So cupping coffee is where you like walk around a table with spoons and you all sort of taste coffee repeatedly. And we were tasting coffee like March 4th with a group of people from Norway, a bunch of people from Taiwan. There was a bunch of people from Australia, a couple of people from Santa Cruz, California and Honduras, like sharing coffee like i was sharing coffee with them (laughs) on like march 5th and then we got on our plane and we flew back to the u.s went through customs in la and we got we got back um here's another crazy thing we went to our lawyer's office on monday we signed a lease on our fourth store we went out there we looked at it we were super excited it was like this very big deal and then that tuesday evening i was about to like send this big um, email excited about this new store we're going to open and we got this a notice that was like things are really bad and we were like well wait what are they and then by the end of the week by the end of the week we realized things were going to start shutting down um and then that next that next week that tuesday um well that next Tuesday, we were basically completely shut down. So in the span of 10 days, we were like internationally traveling, tasting coffee with people literally all over the world, 
signing a lease on a new store to like 26 people got furloughed. And that, wow. that was easily the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and I, it took, it took a lot of me because I don't live in a place like my power place is not in contraction. My power place mm. is like, let's shoot every laser out of every finger I have. And let's like try everything on earth at all times. Like, I feel the best in like the most dynamic that I can be. So to sort of be sitting in a room with Todd and Chach and Matt Fuel and uh, our other uh, manager, Colin, it was, there was five of us and we sat there and we just kept writing people's names on papers and being like, how are we going to do this? What do we do? Because we, we really had to shut down. I mean, we went to, we didn't ever actually close all the way, but we, went to being open for four hours a day and we only stayed open so that we could keep paying those people. Um, Mm. So the first way we went about it was we contacted everybody. And I mean, we'd been in like deep communication with everyone like on the hour basically. And a lot of people took, just said, you can let me like, I don't need this job right now. You can let me go. I'm going to go with my parents. So we had like a lot of, a lot of that, there was maybe just a handful of people that were really sad to have to take time off and it was gut wrenching. And by the end of that day that we did all that, and we called everyone. Um, I remember Chach, Chach, who, again, he's the guy who's, he's worked for us since day one. And he's, he's essentially like my right hand. I can't even exist without him. He looked at me and he said, my wife and I just signed went into escrow on a house like do I have a job and it was like that moment right then where I was like I had I already feel like all the responsibility but I was like this cannot be his fear and Matt Fuel our our roaster he had just signed he had just closed escrow on his house and I thought to myself these are the people they're depending on me to show the leadership to get through these next few months these people cannot have their jobs be in jeopardy. And so it was um, like incredibly humbling and kind of totally ripped me apart. But it also was like all the fires got lit in me. And I was like, no matter what we have to do, we are going to get through this. And these people are not getting laid off. And um, I mean, we pivoted in like every direction we could. We did, we started doing delivery. We did these like crazy prepaid subscriptions. We were just doing anything we could. We started doing half gallons of lattes that we would deliver to your house. And it worked. And like within two weeks, we started bringing people back. We were able to hire people back. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one at a time. And it wasn't like, it was not easy. I mean, we went, we had like a 75% loss in sales in like two weeks. And, um, but we're okay. Like Todd and I, Todd and I are so, um, we're so funny. We've been living with my parents forever. Um, and so I was like, we don't need to take a paycheck. My mom and dad can just wait on the rent, you know? And (laughs) so we did, you know, we, we were able to be super agile and pivot everywhere we could to get through it. And it was impossibly hard. Like, I can't even tell you the way we were doing delivery was I gave people my cell phone number and was like, text me your order 
Oh my gosh. Text me your order and Venmo me and I will show up at your house tomorrow with coffee. And we were doing like a couple hundred deliveries like that. Wow. And like, I mean, it was, I, I kept the notebook that I was writing. It's right here. I kept the notebook because this is like literally how it was like, do you see? It's just like people. Oh my name, gosh. People's hot chocolate, almond croissant, their phone number. And because it was like, we didn't have time to get the infrastructure to work. We just needed this to work. Like I needed. And so we knew the dollar number we had to make every day. And it was like $600. And that was how much we were going to need to make the payroll every week. And so I was like, whatever it takes, wow. you want to buy from me, I will sell it. And so it was, um, that's how we made it through. And then, you know, as things started to open back up, we were able to bring everyone back. Um, and everyone was put back on our payroll before by June. And, but, you know, we're still super contracted. Like we just reopened our patios. Nobody sat inside our coffee shop in a year, which is like the saddest thing. I love our coffee shop. Yeah. It's rough, but like, I, I've been using this metaphor. It's like my favorite metaphor is that it's like a really low king tide, right? The tide is so far out that you, the whole pier is exposed. Every single, every single spot, mm. you can see everything. So while it's like this, we need to fix every single thing that is wrong. And wow. we've been doing that. I mean, it sort of started, it was fully kicked off by, you know, the social justice movement in June. And, um, we took a really hard look on at what we were doing with our human resources and like our accountability to like anti-racist work. And that was like the first big push and it's painful mm -hmm. and it's really validating because, you know, I, we want to be the kind of company I want to be the kind of company that can be on someone's podcast and feel really proud of myself. Yeah. Not myself, but like, I want to be proud of what we do. I don't, mm -hmm. Like, I know this is a business and we make money, but I want this to mean something. It matters to me that this means something. If somebody's going to work for me for 11 years, I want that 11 years to have meant something. Mm. So it's so that that was like a big push that COVID, I feel like really, that was like a reason that it all had to happen at the same time. Right. And, and then the other one was buying green coffee. You know, it's like we've already been pushing to do to buy coffee in the right ways. But something that Todd, who's really a genius at this, he's really good at it is, you know, he was like, well, we buy all this coffee from Brazil every year and we buy them from major farms and our like X amount of thousands of pounds of coffee that we buy here really doesn't mean much to them. They're going to sell it somewhere. So we've pivoted those big, and I'm talking about like coffees that we use for espresso. So like we buy a lot of it. We've been pivoting those coffees to smaller countries, smaller producing countries, um, primarily to like we've been buying some coffee from Colombia now. And then um, I'm, we're moving most of it to Honduras. Again, I feel very, I'm like really connected to what's going on in Honduras, but it's mostly because it's, it makes sense. Like I'm giving, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm giving this opportunity there. And so, and then just really shrinking how much coffee we buy to buy more from smaller, from places that we can really vet. Um, wow. So 
basically we're at this point where we're like done buying not relationship based coffees um, as much as we can. And, and that's really aspirational and it's going to take a lot of time, but that's what we're doing and it's done. Like it's done. So, yeah. So, and that's who you are very proud to be. So it's yeah. like, who, if you're to look back or look forward 10 years from now and say, who do I want to be then? It's like, wow. Well, what taking, like you said with that peer analogy, which I think is perfect. Uh, getting to like make those changes that you're like, this is actually who I want to be and proud to live my life as. Totally. And like foundationally speaking, like these are foundational things, right? Like, yeah. How do I ensure that like everybody that interacts with my business feels good about it? And that means like, if you're an employee and like, is, is it, are our practices aligned with what we say they are? Like, how do I, mm-hmm. how do I know that that's true? Right. Or how do I make sure that like any coffee producer that interact, like is, is putting like our names on their bags of coffee, like that they feel proud of that too. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I, I don't think it's impossible. It's actually really easy to do the work. It's just, Mm -hmm. you have to do it. And it's really easy to not do it too. Right. Like it's really easy to just like coast. And I think COVID has taught all of us that you can't coast or you're going to fall at some point. And so you better, you should be able to be really, you need like in order for us to be successful in 21, 2021, 22 and 23, we have to be really strong right now. And we have to just like prune this bush, clean yeah. it up so that it can flourish. And, you know, cause that's a, that's the big silver lining of COVID too, is that like people are buying coffee to make at home. So our whole bean sales are just out through the roof. And so if we can sort of keep that momentum and add our coffee shop back online, mm. like we, we really have a lot of potential. We have, um, we've added, like we, we sell our coffee in a bunch of grocery stores now and we didn't do that before. And that's really cool. Like, it's cool to me to like walk down the aisle of a grocery store and see my coffee. I'm like, I yeah. did that. <laughs> that's so cool. I love that. So it's like, <laughs> there's, there's a thrill to that. And so, you know, realizing that, um, I mean, people from the outside looking in, look at the coffee industry, they look at specialty coffee and they see the, they see the, like some, the symbols and the signs of it. They see like cool lighting, lots of great art. They see really beautiful equipment. They see cool people behind the counter. They see the kind of place they want. And so that is a desirable thing for a lot of um, developers and even like, dare I say, like tech money, like I think, so that is like a concern of mine is that people may try to like appropriate what we're doing Mm. and take it and make it mean something different. And I, I, I feel very protective, obviously of this industry. It's one I've worked in since I was like 17. Um, and I, and that I've grown with, I think that so that that's like a concern I have in COVID is that like these small businesses, these like small people that are trying so hard are going to feel exhausted and give up. And we'll see like a lot of developers building coffee shops that are, mm-hmm. and they're not, they're not doing that for, they're not doing it right. Or I don't know. It's just like that weird worry. Yeah. But, Moving to what you said at the beginning of it, the word natural yeah. of what natural means and somebody could market it the heck out of what they're doing and they could look like you do um, from the front and like check all the boxes that appear to be doing it right. 
Um, but as soon as you peek behind the curtain um, and then you really look at the whole chain um, and who's being affected from, like you mentioned, employees all the way to the, the growers, you're like, man, it's like you got to take this whole package if yeah. you're going to do it, quote unquote, right. Totally. And, you know, we all know that like we can't I mean, we I can't control anything, but I can control what I do. And that's what I try yeah. to be really focused on because our industry has changed. I mean, it's so funny. Like in our first orientations, I'd say like, what do you know about specialty coffee? And people would be like, oh, no. and now people know, they know what I'm talking about. So obviously yep. the, obviously our industry has pushed people and that's great. And I still say like any slice of the pie that moves into this category is great for everyone. It's going to be good for everyone. This coffee industry is a billion 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 dollar industry it's insane like our reach is huge so we should be what we should be worried about or i don't want worried's not the right word what we should be really focused on is winning people over to specialty coffee because that's where our industry will get better and um it's like you know look at what happened with grapes right like I remember when I was a kid that we didn't, we didn't buy grapes for years. Like my mom just said, Uvas, no, we don't buy grapes. <laughs> and like, I just, we just didn't have grapes. And I think about that as like such a good example. And I'm not trying to say like that that's what I do at all, but I always mm-hmm. think about these like tiny decisions that like my mom was like part of that. Right. She was like, we don't buy grapes because the farm workers are being treated super unfairly. Well, I think, mm-hmm. We shouldn't be buying commodity coffee because this is bankrupting our industry. So yeah. It's like, a, yeah, it's a weird micro macro, but. I totally agree. We even talked about this, but like for myself, um, years ago, I worked with an organization that uh, helped raise awareness for human trafficking. And it showed me uh, a lot of the stuff that I purchased at that time and what that flow looked like. And for me, it was seeing a company like H&M. Um, there was a lot of, um, things coming out about child trafficking and child labor coming through H and M. So for me, I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm a tiny little, I'm not even a pebble in this water, um, to make waves. But for me, I will no longer purchase from them ever again, unless they radically change. I will spend way more money on clothes, but I have to say where my money goes has to improve somebody's life. And if it doesn't, I can't buy from there (laughs) yeah Um, so i feel i totally agree um it may take a little more work but my gosh is it worth it it's totally worth it and i mean man i really think again it's like the covid times the the stripping bare of everything we do it's like how ever like something that my friends that my friends own a a produce organic produce distribution it's called the farm cart and it's in carp and Mm -hmm what what they were able to do with their business was basically like bring bring food to their community that was grown here and i think about the fact that like how do we create and protect and nurture dynamic successful sustainable communities and it really mm-hmm. comes down to all of that it's like every decision just has to kind of come with our communities all in mind and that matters. Like a t-shirt that was made by a little kid that is being pl- the polluting rivers and is just like going to fall apart and like end up ev- in, in a landfill. Like ultimately that's not a thriving community move. Right. 
But a right. thriving community move is maybe like not buying a new t-shirt for a while. Or mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. That's like so far off of anything, but it, it really comes down to in the COVID times, you really have to be like, it's, we're all so aware of, of like the dollar that we have and where it goes and how much of it is not staying here. And yeah. And how much of it we should like, and what I can do about that, I guess is the best way to say it. Totally. Wow. I'm really encouraged. Um, well, looking forward, uh, what does Dune look like for the next uh, three years out? Let's say hopefully not another global pandemic or something <laughs> like that. But what's, uh, what are you guys looking at? Well, man, I mean, we opened our coffee shop in a financial crisis. We survived <laughs> the mudslides. And now we're in this pandemic. I'm like, what will happen in five years? Who even knows? It'll be fine, though. Like, I'm like, that's what I keep thinking. I'm like, man, if, there, if there's anything, I've learned how resilient we are and can be if we have to be. But um, yeah, I mean, we're opening our fourth store. So we nice. did sign that lease. Our landlord is awesome. He was like, how about we just don't talk about it for six months? And then we didn't. And then he said, how about we give you a year to build this thing with so when we won't even talk about rent. So I think, man, wow. what a great landlord. So, you know, we're, we're in this situation where we're going to open a fourth store um, I'm really excited to see where, um, our buying goes. Um, Todd is working with, um, another roaster up in San Francisco, um, Kevin Bullen from St. Frank coffee. And they're basically building a collaborative to buy coffee in Africa. Um, currently Burundi and Kenya. Um, this is Kevin's project, but Todd's coming along on it. And I'm so excited about it because talk about, Talk about like being able to really make small change. It's like we're mm. doing it together. Um, and I just like, I see that I see us just becoming so strong and like being more of what we are already. So I'm really excited to think about how, well, I'm excited to see how the pandemic with all of its limitations still allowed us to thrive. And I mean, I don't mean that like, Mm-hmm. I mean that we we survived it and not only right. did we survive it, but we were able to like learn and grow. I think, well, what will happen when the sun shines on us? It's going to be yeah. cool. So that's awesome. Cool. That's what I see. Lots of, lots of big changes <laughs> that are small changes. Nice. I'll be looking forward to it. Um, what, what are some of the best ways for people to directly support uh, farmers? Like, are there a higher margin items, if I can ask that, or um, direct ways that you can say, I, if I have option A or B, what's the best way that I can support them better? The best thing you can do is, well, buying the single origin coffees, buying a coffee with a, um, and what that means is like, does the bag of coffee that you have in front of you have a farmer or producer's name on it? That means that that person's coffee has been separated out from its area. That means they're mm. being paid a premium for that coffee. Um, you can even ask your local coffee shop, like, hey, like, what coffee are you the most proud of right now? And hopefully, like, they would be able to answer that. Um, and I think the best case scenario is just to, like, to to sort of, you don't have to do so much research, but you can just look a little bit under the hood on the coffee shops you're buying your coffee from 
and the coffee roasting companies you're buying your coffee from. And does it feel like this is marketing or does it feel like this is like something real? And I, and like I said, the majority of specialty coffee companies are doing things right. And that, that is like a relief, right? It makes it feel, it makes it a lot easier. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the best ways. I think, again, when I, when I think about Honduras specifically, because again, we were just there, these people want this opportunity. Like they want an opportunity to see their names on a bag of coffee sold in Santa Barbara, California. Like Mm. this is what they want because it means like they have so much pride in what they do and they feel that. And, you know, so giving, giving farmers an opportunity, that's like, I think the best case. And we give them opportunity by buying coffee that is higher priced. And again, it doesn't have to be extreme, extreme, just a little bit more. Yep. Not crazy. A little change from us. Like, I think I'm still blown away with, I just want to get like a livable life for them, like a healthy livable life where they can like grow as a family. Well, like, something wow. something we did, and this can be like kind of off the radar, off the record if you want, but um, we have one coffee producer mm-hmm. we're buying coffee from. We started two years ago, actually Matt Fuel, um, Matt Fuel met him. They, the first the first time they sold coffee, they saw Todd and Matt Fuel in Honduras, and they um, he like they they saw Benjamin with them, and they were like, "Hey Benjamin, we just started producing coffee." And they said, sure, well, we'll go, we'll go cup it. And they took the coffee back. Todd and Matt were the first people to try it. It was really good. They said, yeah, we'll buy it. They'd only produced um, 10 bags, which is like, no, it wasn't even 10 bags. It was three bags. It's like 400 pounds of coffee. That's not very much coffee. That's definitely not enough to live on if you're spending like three dollars yeah. $4 a pound, right? And so when we went back and visited them this year, this is our third year buying their coffee. They were producing about a couple thousand pounds and we were sitting in his mom's kitchen or Pania and William, and he has a daughter and she's five. And Ben, I mean, said, Oh, where's your wife? And he said, Oh, my wife is in Madrid. She's been living in Madrid for four years while I try to get this coffee thing going. And so she's basically living in Madrid and sending all of her money back to finance, mm. to support and finance this coffee farm for them. And I was like, this is not okay. Like this can't, like, I can't, I can't, like, I cannot yeah. do this. So, you know, we sat and we talked about it a lot and we were like this, like, what do we do? How do we do this? And um, so we we're giving them a differential like two, I think it's $2 differential per pound. And it's, it's basically, it's an incentive to keep growing their coffee and to keep getting the production up. And, you know, I talked to Ben Hamin a few weeks ago when I was doing the interview for Barista Magazine and um, he said, she's coming home, like it's happening. And it's not because I'm making her, it's not like my guilt. It's just like, the point here is like, they, this is worth their family being separate for four years like she hasn't seen her daughter since she was two but she believes in this so much so what is do I have any choice but to be believe in it harder than her like I have no choice but to be like more fiercely advocating for it so I don't even know what you asked me (laughs) like it's it's like such an example of like yeah it matters and if it just matters to that one family, then that's enough for me. 
right? Yeah. So it's um, it's heavy. Yeah. And oh, that's I, where where it was getting. So what we did was we sat down with Ben Hamin and we, I said, let's reverse engineer a good sell a good living wage. So I was like, how much? Like, how much does a person need to make to like? feel good living here and what, and like support and do the national, the growth and whatever. And we basically did the reverse math, which is how we do it with our employees too. Like, how do we, how do we give you paternity leave? You know, like, and we did the reverse math and we got to it and it was not that hard. And that was where I was like, this sucks so bad that Dunkin' Donuts and these like big companies would rather make a couple more million dollars for some guy versus giving these people all they need. And it's like not even that much. Like right. it makes me like, it made me feel enraged. Maybe I'm a bad capitalist, but I feel like it's <laughs> worth it, you know? And it's, I mean, I think that's really yep. where you get to. You're like, this is not even that hard. Right. Like we don't even have to raise our prices to make, wow. like, how is that even fair? Like, ah, so yeah, I, that's what I'm honestly, I'm hoping for is just getting that clear or just getting a peek behind that curtain. Cause I think it's so easy for us to just go about life normally and we just don't think about it. I, maybe we're just quote unquote too busy or we just don't take the time. But that's, I think what I'm most looking forward to with this, if nothing else for me, I feel like if nothing else, COVID changed or it didn't change me, it just exposed like the way I thought about everything this year. and my life um, and my reliance and my whatever obsessions and you name it. Um, it's like so. all the lights got turned on. Oh yeah. Can't, you cannot avoid that thing in the corner anymore. It's there. Yep. You see it. Yep. So yeah, I don't know what that big change is, but my gosh, you're right. If like slowly by slowly people just start making that, like I can't, if that's, if it's uh, a mom being separated from her daughter for four years to make this happen, I think you're totally right. Like even the, what you asked about Matt with paternity leave, it's what do we need to do to make this happen? And just looking at it like that. And my gosh, I'd say people's livelihood is so worth it. Just, just like a living, just, yeah, I agree. And it's easy. It's easy to hear your neighbors, right? Like it's easy when mm-hmm. you're looking them in the face and you can say, well, I, I want that person to be able to provide for their family. Like they're right there. Yeah. I see them. It's just so complicated when it's like trade with a country that you don't ever have to look at. And yeah. And I think that's ultimately what my responsibility is, is like, mm. it's not necessarily to like bang it over the head, but to be like, they are here and like, and it's, and to like, and, and again, like I think being very careful of it, not feeling like charity or because that's yeah. not what it is. Like, I want to buy coffee. I want to pay my invoice. I mm-hmm. want the coffee to be good. Like I want it to be mm-hmm. good. And I want you to be able to go home and feel good at the end of the day and not feel like yeah. robbed by these people. So, and, it, and like nice. I said, it's, it's, cra- it's what you said, actually. It's like, it's not that hard. It's a little hard at first, but it's not that hard. And it's like, mm-hmm. not even really that much more expensive. I mean, sure. It, it can be, but it also doesn't have to be like, we can make these changes to, to work within our lives, you know? Yep. It's worth it. Wow. I'm incredibly encouraged by this. Uh, I feel like I have a lot more. Actually, uh, one more question is what's a good way for people to 
um, check with their local coffee shops um, or seeing um, basically if it's like a good sustainable um, coffee, you kind of mentioned like to do a little more look, is there or a little look behind the scenes at it? Is there a good standard to ask or good yeah. standard of questions to ask? There's um, it's complicated and no, because again, <laughs> like a young industry, there are things like there's a transparency, um, there's a transparency report that you can look online. Um, but that is an opting in kind of thing. It's not an opted, mm. not like something that people are doing, but you know, where people are transparent with the prices that they pay. Um, but again, I think that you can ask really easy questions like, Oh, what do you know about this coffee? Where did this coffee come from? Like those simple questions and like a barista that is proud of what they're doing or knows will be able to tell you. And if you're like, I don't know, it's just there. <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. like I, not to like put it all on them, but you know, again, having somebody's name on a bag of coffee is usually a good indication that they know where it came from. Um, Got it. And most, I would say most specialty coffee companies are trying. So you're, if you're buying your coffee from an independent coffee shop, you're for the most part, probably doing your part. Like you're doing a good job. If you're, nice. Be careful in the grocery stores. That's what I'd say. <laughs> good. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> um, well, awesome. I, I really appreciate your time today. And I just have uh, one more question is what's the best way for everyone to stay in touch with oh, Dune? You're so kind. So Dune... <laughs> dunecoffee.com is our website it's where you can buy all of our coffees um we're at dune coffee on instagram and uh or you can just come see us in santa barbara lucky llama and various other areas spots all over the central coast are we in the central coast i feel like we're not i feel like we're in, i don't know i keep feeling like we need a new every name. time i ask that question it's like southern we always get like grouped into southern at least i don't know i saw that with covid when it was like mapped out we didn't quite hit that. I always feel like it needs to, there needs to be a new differentiator and it's like from the Conejo grade to like Refugio. Like, yes, we're our own I, little zone. That is the best spot. My dad would always, my dad would travel for work a lot growing up and he's like, my gosh, I've seen some pretty great places, but this little strip here, what you just mentioned, he's like, there's nothing like this mm -hmm. in the entire country. I know we're so yeah. lucky. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can find us in lots of different places in the, in our area, but yay. Aren't you guys like in Ireland or something too? Yeah, I mean, we sell our coffee all over the place. There's this like funny thing, which is a huge can of worms, which we probably shouldn't even open. But um, there's this barista competition that occurs. And we have um, somebody that works for us. His name's Kay. And he uh, he's the second in the United States. He's the number two barista in the United States. And so... Um, we have a lot of reach. We sell our coffee all over the whole, we sell our coffee all over the country and internationally. And it's so weird. Whenever we get one of those like requests, I'm like, where did they talk about us? It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> nice. The best. And I like always like sign the invoices and I'm like, thank you. Rochester, <laughs> New York. I don't know how you found us, but thank you for buying our coffee. That's so cool. Come visit. Yeah. It's a warmer now. It's really nice here. Cool. Well, Julia, uh, we spent a lot of time together. I really appreciate all of it. Um, again, I'm incredibly humbled just seeing the amount of work that you go to. Uh, I'm just talking like me personally. I'd, 
it's the amount that you've gone to through your staff, even spending that extra time to say it might cost us a little more, but how can we make it work? And then even, I know you weren't bragging at all. I can sense there's like not a bragging bone in your body about this, but even just seeing how you guys even looked at, we can cut our paychecks to make sure that we can keep our staff feeling safe. Um, and then like the lengths that you've gone to for uh, the different people around the world that like we will never meet, but you have gone out of your way. Um, all I to say, I'm just incredibly humbled and I'm really stoked to be able to have uh, chatted with you and gotten to hear this. So thank you again so much. Oh, you're so nice. Thank you so much. I really appreciated being with you. Of course. Talk soon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and have learned of new ways to help. For more details beyond this interview, head to thesmallpodcast.com. This project was birthed out of the desire to show the big impact of supporting small businesses. If you know of any other compelling people or stories that should be shared, please get in touch at thesmallpodcast.com. Thanks for joining me.